You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. Thanks for tuning in. Sluts and Scholars is a sex-positive, shame-free educational podcast where we try to help you talk smart and fuck smarter. While we love to give advice and resources, please note that this podcast or any emails from us are not intended to be therapy or a replacement for therapy. We are so grateful to Dr. Jasmine Patel for sharing her views on all of these issues. But of course, anything she says is just reflective of her own position and not that of USC's. Welcome back to another week of Sluts and Scholars, where we talk smart and fuck smarter. I'm Nicoletta, and I'm a marriage and family therapist and sexologist. And before she introduces herself, I just want to say a welcome back to Simone, because we are in the same room. Yeah, because I fucking finished finals. So I'm Simone. I'm a law student, and I'm also an abortion doula. And I also obviously like to talk about sex a fuck ton. Um, But we're so excited because this week we have Dr. Jasmine Patel joining us. So she's a native New Yorker and received her medical degree from SUNY Downstate College of Medicine. She then went on to obstetrics and gynecology training at University of Connecticut and then has a family planning subspecialty training at the University of Southern California, USC. She enjoys providing full spectrum women's health care to her patients, including prenatal care, contraceptive counseling, and abortion care. She also values incorporating male partners into conversations about reproductive health as contraception should be a shared responsibility. Fuck yeah. She is currently undergoing research on the age-old contraceptive method of withdrawal, aka pulling out, to figure out why it works for some couples and not others. Welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, guys. Oh my God. And especially on such short notice, like obviously I'm pretty sure none of you live under rocks and there's been a lot of talk about abortion in the news rate, uh, recently, especially with regard to all of these bans, which FYI are not in effect. So that's just something out there. But anyway, welcome. <laughs> something that we know that you are informed about that I really have no idea about is some of the history about contraception. So I feel like we take for granted like what's out there now, but I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about the history of contraceptive care as we know it. Yeah, I'd be more than happy to. So to start off, humans have been trying to have baby-free sex since they realized how babies are even made. As early as even 3,000 years BC, people have used animal intestines and fish bladders to make condoms. I also think like there was like a like goat's eyelids or like a bunch of different stuff. Whatever you could find to dry out and to make into a condom, I'm sure they've tried to use it. (laughs) Some things more successful than others, I'm sure. Um, They even used to make spermicides out of various chemical solutions. That also does not sound like it feels very good. But it wasn't until the 1830s that they actually made condoms and diaphragms out of vulcanized rubber, which kind of revolutionized birth control as we know it. Um, However, then in 1873, the Comstock Act was passed. Mm. And that in the U.S. prohibited the distribution of any type of birth control, so really just condoms and diaphragms, which is what we had, um, and other obscenities, because obviously birth control is an obscenity, um, in the male specifically. And where did this come from? So this came from Anthony Comstock, who was like the general postmaster in the U.S. And he was so against these profanities being spread in the mail that uh, he influenced government and a law was passed. So you could get them in the stock of China. (laughs) So you could buy them in a store, but you couldn't get them through the mail. And not so much. 
birth control itself was later um, banned for everyone. And then eventually married people were allowed to use it. Um, later on in 1916, Margaret Sanger, she opened the first birth control clinic and it was actually opened in Brooklyn, New York, which is where I went to medical school. So I'm quite oh. proud of that. <laughs> um, however, she was put in and out of jail for distributing this birth control because again, it was still not faux pas to even use birth control. Was um, it illegal at the time or it was just, she was kind of finding a gray area? So it was illegal. However, it was a clinic that was providing reproductive health and wasn't specifically advertising spread that they were giving birth control. Okay. But that's what they were giving and that's what they were sending and that's what they were trying to spread Got to it. women that didn't want to be pregnant because they had their eighth child and just couldn't have a ninth. <laughs> <laughs> just had mental Nine. thoughts about eight children. I know, right? Crazy. So the federal ban that we're talking about on birth control was actually not raised until 1938. Um, and then condoms and diaphragms were available to use. And so not many people know what a diaphragm is just because people don't generally use it anymore, but it's actually just like a rubber cup that you put in your vagina and it goes like um, in front of your cervix to just help block sperm from getting into it. And actually that was a very popular method probably for our mothers and grandmothers mm -hmm. since it was really the only available contraceptive method that didn't involve a guy putting on a condom. They yeah. talked about it in Sex in the City. Oh, yeah, yeah, and also that movie just, Strike. Yeah. Oh my God, I like loved that movie when I was younger. Um, How long could you keep it in? So mm -hmm. you're supposed to put it in before you have intercourse, right? But so, could you have it in for like a couple hours before? Like oh, I yeah, know exactly. the internal condom now, you mm -hmm. can put in a couple hours before. Yeah, for sure. So you can keep it in. You have to keep it in for six hours after sex. And that's like after your most recent episode because you have to let all the sperm die in the vagina before you take it out and expose the cervix and uterus. So to your the sperm. like vaginal canal becomes a cemetery for all of the sperm. Pretty much. I love that. I love that. Um, you should fucking bury the dead sperm. Um, how effective is a diaphragm? So the diaphragm, if you're using it more regularly, is it's not effective against STIs. So it reduces the chance of getting cervical sexually transmitted infections like gonorrhea and chlamydia because it's physically blocking the cervix. Mm -hmm. So compared to not using anything, yes, it's better, but it is not supposed to be used as the only method to prevent sexually transmitted infections. Because there's still skin-to-skin skin contact. Well, the skin-to-skin contact even regardless yeah. of um, condoms. So like HPV or right. human papillomavirus, that mm -hmm. involves skin-to-skin. -skin. Herpes involves skin-to-skin. Mm -hmm. skin. So like even a condom isn't going to 100% yeah. protect against that. Um, getting back to the diaphragm, it's around 12% risk of failure with general use, which isn't great, but at the same time, when your Better other chance... condoms, right? Um, so condoms are... I think they're more, used, if they're used properly, yeah, they're more effective. True, but well, typically... Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I mean, that sounds silly, but some people, like, they don't check the expiration date, yeah. or they store it in a hot place, or they don't look for an air bubble in the condom, or they open it with their teeth, mm -hmm. so it, like, degrades, you know, you could rip it. Yeah. So if you're not using it properly, or, like, it's the wrong size or fit, exactly. then it's not as effective as it says it should be. True. Right. Like, that... That's why I thought, like, statistically, it was, like, 82% effective or something. So, when I get you to do my math, it's 18% yeah, failure. There you go. That's 82%. Go. 82%. <gasps> <laughs> I've 
sat, sat in a lot of Title <laughs> 10 conversation. <laughs> cool. Yeah, so the diaphragm is more effective than the condom in terms of typical use. Um, however, you also have to learn how to use it. And a diaphragm isn't something you just get over the counter. You have to actually go to your doctor and then be fitted for a diaphragm, <laughs> which since people don't use it anymore, not that many doctors learn how to actually fit diaphragms. So How do you do it? So you actually have a sizer of different types of diaphragms and the doctor will help put it inside of your vagina and then you kind of feel, because you shouldn't be able to feel it in place and it should sit right underneath your pubic bone really easily. Um, So it's similar to a pessary in that sense. What's a pessary? Um, So a pessary is actually very similar to a diaphragm in the way it looks. It's kind of like either a ring or a cup and it sits inside the vagina to help with um, pelvic organ prolapse or like the uterus falling out. So once you've had your eight children and your uterus is starting to fall out, you use a pessary to help hold it in so it doesn't come outside of your body. Wow. Okay. It's a different kind of rose budding. Lots of things to look forward to in life. (laughs) If you want to have children. (laughs) So then after diaphragm, what's next? Yeah. So after the diaphragms became more popular, um, we actually started working on a birth control pill. So it was in the 1950s and 1960s that a birth control pill was um, experimented on and then brought to market. And then, like I was saying before, in 1965 is when Griswold versus Connecticut allowed married couples to even get this under like the right to privacy. Um, So then slowly after that, after birth control became more acceptable, um, IUDs like the Lippies Loop and the Copper 7 became approved by the FDA. And then pills continue to evolve um, to become more safer because the original pills were really, really high doses of hormone that made people really nauseous and sick and have blood clots. But honestly, women were so willing to use them because it meant that they couldn't get pregnant. So they'd rather be nauseous from the pill than nauseous from pregnancy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Most of this took place in Connecticut, right? Because there were only like two states on the books that still had these like anti contraceptive, mm-hmm. anti-contraception laws. And so like Griswold came out of this crazy law and like it was struck down and allowed married people to get it. And then in response, fucking Massachusetts was like, okay, but unmarried women cannot. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? I find it seems so counterintuitive because this is a very puritanically founded country when colonialism came here. So I would imagine that they would give it to the people who aren't married because they might think that people who get married, that the purpose of being married is to have kids. Yeah, Yeah, but but if you're not married, you shouldn't fuck. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. The whole point is it's that all, it's can't. all messed up. <laughs> it's kind of like almost this like background of abstinence only. You're assuming that if you provide no contraception and no education, then people, people aren't going to bone. <laughs> yeah. I mean. Which is like fully insane. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> back to Dr. Jazz. <laughs> um, yeah. So it wasn't actually until 1972 that Baird legalized birth control for all people. So that's when unmarried and married people didn't matter. You could finally get it, which is crazy because it's not that long ago, guys. No, not. that's one year before Roe. Yeah, like wild, absolutely wild. Um, so then people were using IUDs, using um, pills, whatever methods were available, and those were those at the time. Um, but what kind of ruffled feathers and all was that in 1974, the Dalcon Shield, which was one of the IUDs that was available at the time, was actually suspended because of seven deaths and lots of infections in people. And so that's how IUDs got a bad name in America. Not many people know about this, but I didn't even know that IUDs 
had been around that long yeah. until recently because it seems like there's been such a, a spike in people using them now. Exactly. So I was like, oh, this is a new technology, but it's really not. Yeah, exactly. So I What used, happened with that product? So the Dalcon Shield, the reason why that one specifically and not other IUDs were at more risk of infection and why the current IUDs we have aren't anywhere mm-hmm. near as bad as that one is because the string that was on the IUD, and mind you, this IUD looked like a stingray. So it had these little like fins too that made it really painful when you took out. But because it had those fins, that was really difficult to make it come out, sorry, to remove it. Um, The string that was used on it was not just one string, but rather a braided string. And so when you have braided strings in the vagina, bacteria love to live on them. And so that is why there was an increased risk of infection if you had the Dalcon shield. But then why did people die from that? Because if you have an infection that then does not get treated, people can die from sepsis. So that's why that IUD specifically was removed. Now the other IUDs available at the time did not have this problem. They had just one string because they were not that difficult to remove. And the ones that we use now are just one um, string, not a braided string. And so they have much lower risk of infection and therefore death. And it feels just like a fishing line actually. Yeah, they're different colors too. Different color strings? Can yeah. you pick like a retainer? <laughs> <laughs> no, it just depends on the IUD that you have. <laughs> like polka dot, watermelon. <laughs> okay, interesting. But yeah, so then that's when like, and that's why maybe some of our mothers may say like, oh, don't get an IUD because they remember the time mm. when IUDs used to cause infection and specifically the Dalcon Shields. And so that's also why IUDs were not recommended to people who have never had babies before. I don't know if you've ever heard your doctor say, oh, yeah, if you so haven't what- had a baby, you can't get an IUD. And so the reason was, what if you got an infection in your uterus and had to get your uterus removed, then you would never be able to have babies, which is why until like 1992, ACOG, which is our governing body, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, came out with a statement that said that we can recommend IUDs to women that have not had a baby because of the safety. But that's of them. coming from a place assuming that everyone should have babies. Oh, of course. I mean, wow. we're coming from a puritanical society yes. where if you're unmarried, you shouldn't have sex. But then as soon as you're married, you're a baby making machine. It's crazy. I once had, so as I mentioned, I'm, in a, I'm an abortion doula. I once had a patient who um, had three children or four children already. She was like 22 or 23, and after her last child, she desperately wanted her tubes tied, um, or sure, or whatever people were doing that or still are. Um, and like the doctors refused. They were like, you're too young. I'm not going to do this for you. And she already had three children and like did not want another child. And like that. And so because she had already had two children, she had placenta accreta for her abortion. Oh, she was gosh. only like 14 weeks. What's placenta accreta? So that's when the placenta is actually growing into the uterus. So instead of just growing on the uterus, it grows into the uterus. And, and that is that dangerous that's for both? super dangerous. Because you get like a big hemorrhage when it comes out. Yeah. And wow. it, slash it can't come out because it's stuck. It's yeah. literally growing into the uterus. So the only way wow. to take it out is to take the whole uterus out. Which and it often is super dangerous. grows into like C-section scars, right? Yeah, exactly. So the more C-sections or scars on your uterus that you have, that increases your risk for it. Can you get scarring that can impact your risk of having kids if you've had multiple abortions? 
So it's very, very rare for that to happen. It's theoretically possible where you have scar tissue or synechiae inside your uterus. Um, you can have what's called a hysteroscopy and then like a lysis of these adhesions if that occurs. However, a, a lysis? Yeah. So like, like they go in and them. cut it off. Yeah. Oh. So it's like cutting the little scar tissue that's inside your uterus. So oh. it's possible, but it's very, very rare. Yeah. What is the, what is the like, I know we're still talking about contraception, but we're talking about full spectrum of reproductive health care. And I think you brought up a really interesting point about abortion risks and like multiple abortion risks. And so I was just curious if you could talk about like what are the actual like stats on like any that like an abortion will affect your ability to have children or this like bullshit like causes breast cancer yeah, or thing. myths about it. Yeah. Yeah. So there's definitely a few myths that I've heard and a few myths that the government wants us to perpetuate to our patients, which is quite frustrating. That you learn in school that they want you to maybe know that states mandate yeah. that providers tell their patients things that are just medically inaccurate. Yeah. Because of laws that are passed in those states. And they're just mm -hmm. fully intended to dissuade people from having abortions. Exactly. So a few myths, like we mentioned before, that abortion can cause breast cancer. There is no scientific evidence whatsoever that an abortion can cause breast cancer. Breast cancer happens for a variety of reasons. Abortion is not one of them. However, five of the six states that include information on breast cancer during the uh, abortion counseling assert that there's a link between, and you have to tell your patients that. Which is just so it's just wild. a false scare tactic. Exactly, one hundred percent. Exactly. Um, some people think that having a baby is safer than having an abortion. Oh In actuality, gosh. having a baby is eight times more risky than having a first trimester abortion. Um, there's also the myth that a medical abortion, the one that involves pills, can be reversed, and that you could just take high doses of progesterone, and that'll reverse the medication abortion. However, there's no scientific evidence whatsoever that a high dose of progesterone is going to help reverse the medication. So the mifepristone is a progesterone antagonist. So it is going to actually cause like micro contractions of the uterus to help to start separating the pregnancy from the uterus as well as to soften the cervix so that it's ready for the effects of the mesoprostol that you'll give 20 to 4 to 48 hours afterwards. And so then it's the mesoprostol itself that causes the uterine contractions that help to push the pregnancy out, mm -hmm. very similar to a miscarriage. And remember and for listeners, this is different than taking emergency contraception like plan B afterwards, oh, which stops implantation. So actually, right? no, yes, correct me, but I'm just saying it's not the same as an abortion. No. So emergency contraception and contraception in general is not an abortion. That's another myth of abortions, that contraception is the same, which is absolutely untrue. So emergency contraception, there's three different types and they all work in a little bit different ways. Um, the pills, so either plan B, which is levonorgestrel, a high dose of progesterone hormone, um, excuse me, progestin hormone. And Ella, which is, again, another anti-progestin, um, works by preventing ovulation. So that's preventing the egg from even coming out of the ovary because you can't get pregnant unless you have an egg that comes out. So if the egg has already come out of the ovary, then the emergency contraception is not going to work. So it's not, you know, an abortion in any sense of it. Um, the copper IUD is another form of um, emergency contraception. And so if you have that inserted within five days of unprotected intercourse, the copper ions actually kill sperm. So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and create a hostile environment inside the uterus. 
if it if it does make an inhospitable, I was gonna say an inhospitable work environment. Yeah. <laughs> if it does make this kind of space and kill sperm. How is it that some can eke by and folks can still get pregnant because with the copper IUD? I mean, it's not perfect. Yeah, exactly. Everything is a chance. The only thing that a hundred percent prevents pregnancy is not having sex. Is abstinence. <laughs> well, However, not having penetrative sex. Vaginal, lots of other penile. kind of sex. Yes. For example, yes. yes. I mean, lots of <laughs> guys, we talk about it on all of our episodes. <laughs> but yeah, exactly. But even when people are say, okay, I'm not going to have sex, sometimes those intentions don't actually play out the may- way they mean them to. And so that's when emergency yeah. contraception is something they should definitely think about. Are you about. talking about like when you're like, we're not going to have penis and vagina intercourse, and then you're like, stick your dick in me, or like, just like, coming somewhere like around Near. the vagina. Like, is that a true thing? That like, if there's like, um, come like near your vulva or near your introitus, like that you like can get pregnant? So technically, yes. If any of those sperm can swim up the vagina into the egg, then you can get pregnant. Can is there a swim? lower chance? Yes. But so when they're swimming, what are they swimming through? Yeah, so all the... Secretions that are in the vagina, as so well as through my secretions yeah. too. They don't need the 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 liquid of the sperm. So there is some growth and nutri- nutrients within the seminal fluid that helps the sperm, but they're swimming through all of the cervical secretions. And if somebody is ovulating normally, you know why you get that extra discharge in kind of the middle of your to cycle help the to help the sperm when the uh, egg comes out of the ovary. They want to provide a sperm superhighway. Uh, I hate when our bodies naturally do things to support the sperm. It's so frustrating. <laughs> sperm superhighway. I love that. I mean, you seem to be so well-versed on so many of these things. and She's a fucking OBGYN. <laughs> yes, and... In my practice, I've come to find that not all OBGYNs are alike in what they know. And so I wonder, like, in your studies or just in interacting with others, like, what have you seen are some of the gaps in what is taught um, to folks in your field? Yeah, I've definitely seen a few things that I wish was uh, expanded upon and taught a little bit more in medical education. One of them is just, like, sexuality and pleasure in sex. Like, luckily, during my medical school, we had a sex therapist that gave an elective on sex and medicine. But it's just an elective. It's not even a required class. It was not a required class. There's only 10 students in the class. Um, And I was one of them, which was awesome. We had 200, probably, in our um, entire medical school class. So... It was only a few 5%. that decided to actually take so this So human class. sexuality is not required for OBGYNs. Nicoletta, you're just an elective. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, mean, I already knew this, like, but I'm just reiterating it for our listeners because I'm, it's so shocking because when you think of like what the job means, yeah. why wouldn't that be included? Yeah. So, I mean, time is one of them. There's many topics to include, and so I think that's partially part of it. But also, not everybody feels comfortable talking about this kind of stuff. And you would think so you that your doctor your, yeah, you would. You can put your hand inside of someone, but let's not talk about it. No, 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 no. Because, I mean, we're from a puritanical society. <laughs> um, yeah, so it would be really great if people were taught how to talk to patients about these uncomfortable topics. Because honestly, like, who else are you supposed to talk to about sex? Like, your partner, but when you've been shamed and sex has been so stigmatized in your entire life... You might be not willing to do that. And then if you're having a problem, like who's going to ask you about that? And unless your OBGYN or your primary care doctor is in tune with asking those questions, that problem may never get solved. 
interrupting this titillating talk to let you know that this episode is sponsored by Care Of, which is a monthly subscription vitamin service that delivers completely personalized vitamin and supplement packs right to your door. So you can spring into a healthy routine, aka actually be able to bang every day. How is it personalized? You take this fun, like five minute online quiz and based on your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices, Care Of comes up with a specific personalized vitamin routine. Getting your vitamins should be easy and convenient. That's why Care Of delivers a month's supply in individual packs that have little inspirational message on, messages on them. For example, one of mine says like, have a great day, Simone. And so I empty the pack and take all my vitamins right then. And the thing about Care Of is they actually care. A portion of every sale goes to the Good Plus Foundation, which provides expectant mothers with much-needed prenatal vitamins. So if you want to try Care Of, you can get your first month 50% off by going to TakeCareOf.com and use our code SNS50. Enjoy. Sex and medicine, what's the link? Like, what was taught? Yeah, so we actually um, learned about Masters and Johnson's uh, their experiments on masturbation and orgasm and climax and how they're different for men and women and how to talk to patients about these things and how to normalize talking about sex and actually being able to provide realistic expectations. Like, I've had a patient tell me that he was upset and thought that he had um, erectile dysfunction because he could only have sex for a half an hour and not anything more. And all of his friends and everywhere he's seen, like porn videos, show that you could have sex for an hour. And Ugh. so just these expectations Ugh, that were not with sex very play realistic. for an hour, not fine with penetration for an right? hour. Right? <laughs> like, this is just unrealistic in mm -hmm. terms of what um, people think is normal and nobody has ever told them otherwise. Yeah. And the things that are in the media and in um, the news and just on the internet. Just but even Masters and Johnson is somewhat dated. Oh, so yeah, I wonder for sure. if they like expanded on it. Or and not even just dated, but who's the population they looked at? Very homogenous population, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like they Hetero look couples. At, yeah, and not even just that, but even by race. Like maybe different races are different in terms of their sexuality. We don't huh. know these things. Huh. Yeah, there's so much more to learn. Whoa, I didn't even think about that. But, um, oh, God, there's two questions I want to know. The first is, like, you're talking about, um, like, things that are taught in medical school. So I'm really curious about abortion stuff. But also, like, really quickly, you said you see men. So that was during medical school when I had that experience with a man. It. I was actually under urology And by men, rotation. I mean cisgender men, people with penises. Yeah. Okay. Um, I was on in rotation at that time. However, during my current practice, I have the male partners of my patients present in the room, and I would be more than happy to see men. Um, currently, I'm not able to do so, but in my future practice, I hope to be able to do vasectomies and counsel men on their reproductive options as well, because it seems like male birth control might be coming to fruition soon. <sighs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> But back to abortion. Um, what else is not taught in school enough? Abortion. So the ACGME is the OBGYN accrediting body for all residency medical training programs. And so they require these res residency programs to teach abortion and post-abortion care as well as contraception. However, if you are a resident that is in a religiously affiliated hospital, you may not actually get that requirement. Like, yes, on the books, you got it because you watched some module or... You know, just a video? Yeah, something like that. And that fulfilled your requirement. However, how is that comprehensive GYN education? I personally believe it's not. And so it's actually a disservice to you as a 
future physician as well as to your patients. Because even just the simple like tubal ligation, like tying somebody's tubes, like if you've never learned to do that after a C-section, you know, that's a disservice to you. You're not learning to do that because your hospital isn't allowed to provide it. And Why then, do you think they make some of this stuff optional? Make learning it optional? Yeah. Because it's yeah. so contested in our society. And so these religious so organizations... So people like the religious freedom, I guess, to say, well, I'm against abortion, so I'm not going to do one. Well, and that's not even the case in some hospitals. In some hospitals, you're not allowed to do an yeah. abortion or give contraception or My, do a because of the ownership so of I the went, hospital. So hospital. I went to Georgetown undergrad, which is a Catholic institution, and contraception is not available on campus. Like So at, at your all. student health clinic, you were not allowed clinic, to get There was no pills. You could not buy condoms, mm-hmm. nothing. Wow. And the hospital, like I'm pretty sure, sure as shit, did not do abortions. Mm-hmm. I'm so surprised you went there, given those beliefs. I know, me too. Well, so, I guess you could be like and the so that's standout the thing. person. No, I gave out condoms. I had a, I, there was an organization called Hoyas for Choice. And like to all, Hoyas with an asterisk, because we weren't allowed <laughs> to use the trademarked Hoyas because um, it was not officially recognized by the university. Gotcha. And so people got envelopes that they would put on your door, on their door because your dorm room door was a free speech zone. Yeah, and so you were allowed to put manila envelopes on your door and like Hoyas for Choice would provide you with condoms and lube that you could just stuff your envelope with. And ours was called a love loaf. <laughs> I love that. I absolutely love that. But unfortunately, some people and patients don't know these things when they go to these hospitals. So they may show up at a religiously affiliated hospital for their fourth C-section and ask their doctor to perform a tubal ligation and be refused because what reason they were at will they hospital. give them or they'll just say we don't do that They just say here. the hospital does not allow that. And that's so unfortunate because now you have to, if that patient really wants to have a tubal ligation, Bring them get to another a hospital. fifth surgery wow. after her C-section because you're not going to change your C-section just because you can't get a tubal. But now she's exposed to more risk going to and through another surgery in order to have that. So what made you want to do more research and education around this? I feel really passionate about providing this type of education because I remember being in high school and not knowing anything about birth control, anything about contraception, and just feeling like I wanted to know more but who was going to teach me. And I don't like that feeling for anybody and I wouldn't want to give that feeling to anybody. And so that's why I'm so passionate about spreading information about birth control and abortion care in case patients ever need it because not having information when access is possible is really just an injustice. But how can you tell if your OBGYN isn't telling you everything? Like, how do you know if you're going to like a religious OBGYN or just like an asshole? Like I had a patient who's regular OBGYN, she was pregnant Mm -hmm. and he was like, I'm not going to tell you where to get an abortion. Yeah. And so, and so that's the thing. So this whole uh, conscientious objection is the reason people use in medicine and, you know, more specifically women's health to uh, say that I'm not going to provide an abortion for you. And so the stipulation is that if you're not going to provide a procedure, then you should be able to refer to somebody else that will in a timely fashion. Obviously, pregnancy is time. Exactly. And not is that only will they not. Is unethical or so is there a, a loophole? It's absolutely unethical. Um, uh, it is technically illegal, however, it is not enforced. What do you mean technically illegal? Well, with the new law on being able to morally object, object you should be referring to another provider, but there is no 
direct. There's no mechanism of enforcement. Exactly. There's no punishment for it. Like there's no, there's nothing written of what would happen if you didn't do it. And then the other thing is, is that in an emergent situation, you can't refuse. And really that's something that we learn when we become physicians and providers as like the Hippocratic oath of like doing no harm and like, you know, helping a patient as much as you can. However, I had an incident at my past hospital where the patient came in with a post-abortion complication, which is extremely rare. Like you see so many more pregnancy and birth complications than you do post-abortion complications. But anyway, she came in with that and the anesthesiologist refused to give her anesthesia in order Mm -hmm. to have her go back to the operating room to take care of this complication. Mm -hmm. And so another anesthesiologist had to be called in from home, which delayed her care. And she could have- In order, she could have bled out. She could have died. Luckily that didn't happen, but until something drastic like that happens where it calls attention to a situation like this- And is this true in all states that people can opt out like that? So you're not allowed to opt out like that anywhere, but it happens. happens. That's my point. really? Yeah, in an You're emergent not situation. To opt out any, so this, in an emergent situation, in an emergent situation, right? Unless you can get somebody wow. else to do your job. And because you're not able to do but it because you're morally objecting. You're to do no but harm. in an emergency, you should not be delaying care because you morally object. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then right? I guess people like fuck with the definition of emergency. Exactly. That's how they get exactly. It. And so that's really just so fucked up. Detrimental to women's health. Well, yeah, because I just want to say, like, fortunately, in the case you're talking about, like, the person didn't die, but, like, let's be frank, pregnant people die because of this. Especially women of color. Right. Especially Especially. women of color. But I'm I'm even thinking about that case in Ireland, like, five Mm -hmm. years ago, where, like, there was fetal demise and they just, like, would not, like, take it out. And so the crazy thing is that we see cases similar to that pretty often still in California. Like I've had patients that, so when a patient goes into labor or breaks their water early, let's say around 18 weeks, so very early in pregnancy, um, there is very, very, very minuscule chance that fetus will ever be able to survive or make it to term or have a significant quality of life because of all the um, defects that can sorry, not defects, because of all the complications that can arise from having the water broken that early. And so one of the biggest risks to the mother is that infection can then ensue because now the uterus can um, acquire all of this bacteria from the vagina. And so when that happens, really we talk to our patients about what they would like to do and whatever they'd like to do based on the risks and the benefits, we would do. However, some hospitals would not provide an abortion in that situation because this fetus might still have a heartbeat. However, the chance of this fetus surviving is so minuscule compared to the chance of this woman developing an infection, possibly sepsis, and dying from having a ruptured membrane. And so I've had patients that had to be transferred to my hospital because their, the hospital that they came from refused to do that. And that's similar to this Ireland case, which is why the woman died, because yeah. they would not do an abortion well, in this situation. She developed sepsis and died. Yeah. And so the, the difficult thing is how you apply the law, because really the law says that, you know, abortion can't be done unless the life of the mother is threatened. But it doesn't say when is the life of the mother threatened. We know through scientific evidence that infections can progress and cause sepsis and death. 
But is it going to be immediate? Exactly. Is it going to take a day? Is it going to take a week? Is it going to take a month? We don't know those things. And there's this weird ability that states have in the United States about um, balancing the compelling interest and the potential life of the fetus with the risk of death. And that's subjective. Of the mother, which is like subjective and like is almost on a case by case basis. And it's, it's, I don't understand it because it is illegal to force a parent to donate their bone marrow or their kidney to a child. It is illegal to force a blood transfusion. And yet we like force like people with uteruses to do all of these things for this not even full human. It's also illegal to take organs from a corpse when the individual did not- Not a donor. Was Exactly, was not a Just donor. Just watch the Law & Order episode about that. <laughs> I mean, so, I want to go back to something you were saying earlier about including, I mean, obviously not every partnership is heterosexual, but you were talking about including men in this process. And I think- when I first heard it, I had like this anger response of like, this is my body and I choose and I don't need so you know, I don't need a man there telling me what it is, but obviously it's more than that. So I wonder like when you say you're including and trying to educate male partners in this reproductive process, what does that actually look like? Yeah. So oftentimes I'll have a female or a person that is able to get pregnant in my office and they have their partner there with them. And more times than not, even when their partners are not present, I have lots of my patients that come in and tell me, I want to talk this over with my partner before I make a decision. And that happens more often than you can think of. Mm -hmm. And that's because sometimes with making decisions, especially big decisions in your life, you want to talk to somebody and usually the person that you trust the most is your partner. They may not have the knowledge and the resources of how to respond. I know I had a client recently who was telling their partner and I think they responded with, um, when they first said they were pregnant, they were like, oh, that's so exciting. But the partner didn't want to keep the baby to term mm-hmm. um, and wanted to get an abortion. Mm-hmm. And so I think people don't know how to respond. Yeah. And it also seems like having your partner in a room, like if they're not in the room and you want to talk it over with them, things get lost in translation. Like an average patient is not a medical mm-hmm. doctor. And so no matter how wonderful your physician is at explaining things to you and giving you all the information and explaining it in lay terms. It can be like, overwhelming too it can be to overwhelming. remember. Like how much are you going to remember? So it makes so much sense to really encourage. Yeah, and that's obviously only if the patient wants it. I always offer like, hey, is your partner here today? Do you want them to be in the room for this conversation? And if they do, I include them. And I think that that not only educates the patient, because then the patient can talk to the partner, hey, what did she actually say or mean by this? But also educates the partner because, I mean, who who talks to men about sex, about contraception, about reproductive responsibility? I'm still waiting to find out the answer to that. So it's more sharing the, not taking away the rights of the woman, but sharing the onus and the burden with men because for a lot of time it has been on us with the vulvas to carry that burden. Yeah, exactly. In most respects. Exactly. And also just, you know, see what the woman goes through with mm-hmm. everything, you know? Like, see, it's not that easy to get an IUD placed. Like, it can be pretty uncomfortable. So you even encourage partners being in the room for procedures? If they are willing to and want to and the patient wants them there. Really, it's all about the patient at that yeah. point. And if they want to, then I encourage them because also, like, they help remind the patient of certain things. Like, make sure you check your strings every month, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but really... I like the partner being there as well so that they can also be educated since nobody really teaches them about contraceptive methods. And also so that maybe 
eventually when they are done with, you know, having babies of their own, they may want to participate and either use male birth control or wear a condom or get a vasectomy. I mean, we're talking about abortions somewhat broadly, and I want to point out, like, not all abortions are equal. And so I know you work in a county hospital, and I wonder, is it different than what folks who maybe have better insurance or are willing to pay out of pocket like how do abortions look different for people of different socioeconomic status? Yeah, so really it depends on what insurance covers. And so some people's insurance may cover abortion. and some So let's say someone has no insurance yeah, so, and wants to get an abortion. So it depends on where you are if you have no insurance. Um, if you do qualify for emergency Medicaid because you are pregnant, then it also depends on what state you're in in terms of if your abortion will be covered. So some states offer emergency insurance to cover an abortion, but mm-hmm. it doesn't really last but if afterwards. State, but if their state insurance is actually not state funded, but federally funded, like if it's just straight Medicaid, as opposed to what we have in California, Medi-Cal, there's this thing called the Hyde Amendment, H-Y-D-E, which prevents, like you are not allowed to use federal funding for abortions. It's not like you have the option to not, like it is not allowed. allowed. And it's not even just those states, but it's also uh, patients that are in the military or have Mm -hmm. military insurance. If you're incarcerated and you're not under state funded Medicaid, but under federal Medicaid, then you're not allowed to. Um, And any, and people in Washington, D.C. that are under Medicaid. Wow. Yeah, so. And what about um, government employees? So government employees that get their insurance through Medicaid or federal funds, Hyde Amendment is applicable to them. Yeah. So when my husband asked me if I wanted to be on his military insurance, I was not very happy to join, nor did I. Did I? <laughs> that was my moral objection. I mean, I'm just thinking of, of someone that I knew that did, that had the money to get a private abortion. And so what that looked like, does, is their OBG met them at a private facility? Mm-hmm. They wanted to go under, so they put them fully under and were asleep through the full procedure yeah. so they don't remember anything and then were able to like recover in this like nice space. And that was like a luxe Oh yeah, for sure. So, abortion. Yeah, so, so like what does it often look like when that's not the what case. someone can afford? Yeah. And so it depends on if one, your OBGYN is willing to provide an abortion and where they're willing to provide it. Are you able to do it in your clinic? Are you able to provide some sedation in that clinic? Are you able to go to a surgical center or do you have to go to the hospital? Because obviously there's different costs associated with um, getting a procedure done in the clinic, which is going to be less than going to the hospital where you have to pay you know, the overhead of everything. So even with insurance, that's different. But for most people, most people that can't go to their OBGYN or if their OBGYN doesn't provide abortions would probably Google, where do I get an abortion near me? And what shows up first? Planned Parenthood. No, fucking fake clinics. Really? Whenever I'm in, I mean, California, maybe not. But whenever I'm in a random state, I literally Google, where can I get an abortion? Because I'm truly curious about the SEO. And, um... When I was in Wyoming for the eclipse, like the first three searches were fake pregnancy clinics. So that's you might have heard true. these as crisis pregnancy centers, but basically they're clinics where they act like they're doctors and they are they are designed to convince you to not have an abortion, and they're traps. It's really really fucked up. 
But anyway, oh, no, you're you? absolutely right. You're, you're absolutely right. I actually testified um, in Hartford, Connecticut for a ordinance that would make these crisis pregnancy centers have to disclose that they have no medical professionals on site. Um, and so this is something that's also been kind of fought across right. the country. Well, it was struck down because California had that with the FACT Act and that yeah. was struck down. And so it was struck down because there was just too many languages that they would have to put it in in California. However, that's not true for around the country. So in Hartford, there was only a few languages that people spoke, so it was not an undue burden in order to do that. And so it was not the same. I thought it was more about, like, you can't force people to say things that they're morally opposed to. Yeah, and so I think it's a combination of those. Got it. I think there's more that still can be done in order to hold these crisis pregnancy centers accountable and uh, help women actually get the care that they desire versus false medical information. Yeah, it's so fucked up. I think one of the first steps is calling them fake clinics. Mm-hmm. That's like just like the verbiage we use. Like the same way that I don't use the term pro-life, I will say anti-choice or like pro-birth because like I really think that the language we use like really has an effect on how we think about things. Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Um, but back to kind of getting a normal abortion, Um if you go to Planned Parenthood or Family Planning Associates or any other um, place that provides these abortions, um, you would then give them a call and try to see when you can fit in for availability. And most of them will try to do your procedure the same day in California because we don't have any mandatory waiting periods. However, across the country, that's very different. So different states have from 24 to 72 hour and waiting, waiting periods. the waiting period is designed to like give you information to maybe talk you out of it or see to if you change over your mind. Because you can't possibly make that decision immediately. Yeah, it's not day. like you thought about it before you came no, to the clinic, especially if your clinic is fucking 180 miles away and you had to take the day off work and find a fucking babysitter for your kids. And then you get to the clinic and you get this fucking informed consent. And then you have to wait Simone 24 fucking hours. <laughs> and that means you have to incur hotel costs and more childcare and you have to take another day off work. It's all fucking designed to make people not fucking do it. But yet it's not an undue burden. So that's why these bans keep happening until... Um, they're brought to higher courts to figure out what's going on. So if you can get there, if you can make an appointment. Yeah, then you have to sign a consent form and then the waiting period begins. And so in some states, you have to sign the consent form with the same provider that's going to be doing the procedure. And so in some, you have to listen to um, certain counseling. In some, there's you know ultrasound images that you have to watch. Well, it's all under the guise of safety, but is it actually safer? No. Yeah. So if you are uncomplicated medically, then you can have your procedure done um, at the clinic. However, if you've had multiple C-sections, if you've had any other medical complications, you uh, may have to be referred to a higher level of care. And that would involve a hospital setting where you have anesthesiologists and other staff that are um, there to help make the procedure safer for you. However, in some of those states where there might be only one abortion clinic, you may not have a hospital that's willing to do the procedure nearby. And so that's where it gets unsafe for patients that want abortion care and that could potentially die from um, a pregnancy. And back to the thing about the person with whom you have the counseling and you sign the form has to be the person who provides your procedure. Mm -hmm. Um, 
sometimes if even if the even if the waiting period is 24 or 72 hours if that physician isn't like that doesn't work with their schedule you have to wait even longer oh yeah or if that person is sick right. or if that person you know is coming in from a different state to help provide abortions in the state that you live in yeah there's so many restrictions um but abortion is healthcare abortion is comprehensive women's healthcare and really should not be separated from anything of the such because there are so many circumstances that like lay people just can't envision. And honestly, even as a medical professional, sometimes it's hard to even think of all the scenarios where an abortion can save someone's life or can help someone or, you know, at the end of the day, it's not my body. So therefore it shouldn't be my choice what you do with your body. Mm -hmm. And so really we need to help support women making decisions for themselves after having full education on all of their options rather than limited options or judging them or making decisions for them. Oof. I mean, so we're talking about education and options for contraception as well as, you know, if you do get pregnant and don't want to, you know, have the have the baby. But one of the things that we didn't cover that I know you focus on in some of your research is the withdrawal method yeah. or pulling out. Exactly. And so as we dad joke pull out of this episode, I wonder if you could say a little bit about that because a lot of people think it's not a good way to practice um, safer sex, but it can be if you do it right, at least to prevent unwanted pregnancy or unplanned pregnancy. So withdrawal is actually one of those methods that's also been around since forever. It's actually in the Bible with Onan um, spilling his seed on oh, the right. ground to prevent pregnancy. I'm oh, so glad you said that. about masturbation. <laughs> no, that's I thought Onanism was about masturbation. So it could be both. I'm, no, I'm really passionate about this because I always, when I'm teaching clients or other people about like the the Bible and shame around sex, it never says anywhere that masturbation is not allowed. Hmm. The only story is the sin of Onan, mm -hmm. which is about pulling out, not about self-pleasure. And that means he pulled out, yeah. so he spilled his seed. Exactly, so that he wouldn't get his, like, his, like brother's widow pregnant. Oh, oh anyway, interesting yeah. little tidbit. But yes, also, the Old Testament <laughs> is not anti-abortion as well. That's true. There's nothing in it that says no abortions. Absolutely It even true. says you're supposed to if someone is in danger. Yeah. Anyway. For sure. Um, so since this has been such a popular method and has actually decreased birth rates across the world throughout the centuries. Um, Not like, STI rates, just birth rates. Exactly. <laughs> um, it is actually still pretty popular. About 59% of women say that they've used withdrawal ever in their life. Yep. Um, yeah. Wait, so how many people? 59%. Right? So like most women have ever used it in their life. And so if that's the case, why don't we talk about it more? Why don't we know about it more? So when you actually look at all of the studies that have been done on it, there's really not that much and there's not that much specific evidence. And that's also why doctors don't like talking about it because they I don't people know that People that it's like the irresponsible exactly. type of control. Exactly. But when you yeah, actually so. look at the effectiveness of it, um, with the typical use, which is sometimes doing it right, sometimes doing it wrong, it's around 20% that you could have a pregnancy within one year. So- that's only 2% more risk than proper condom, than current condom use. Yes. <laughs> so what is doing it right? So, I remember in undergrad, someone said pee before sex because mm -hmm. it helps clear out any um, pre-cum that can be left over oh. in the urethra. So that's definitely a recommendation. So you want to clear that that's out. That's for the person with the penis. 
Exactly. Um, however, it's hard to know because the real definition of pulling out is just ejaculating after removing your penis from the vagina and away from the external genitalia. So not ejaculating anywhere near that. But the person has to know when they're about to ejaculate and therefore ejaculate on time. And so, so they have to have good control. Exactly. And doing that right every time. And then a recent study actually found that some men have sperm in their pre-ejaculate and some men don't have sperm in their pre-ejaculate. Can you so test that? that? <laughs> Is that what you were doing today? Counting sperm? <laughs> so yeah. So for my study, I actually want to figure out why do some men have it and some men don't? And is that true? Because that was just one small study that said that that happens. So why is it that some people are very successful with using withdrawal for years and years and never get pregnant when they don't want to, but other people are getting pregnant really quickly? But or see, this should be a test that when people go to the doctor or when they're deciding what they want their reproductive health to look like or their contraception method, they should test if there's a person with a penis in the relationship, they should test them to see which kind they are so they know if the pull-out method is a good method for them. And so what you're talking about is individualized healthcare. And so that yeah. would be great. And so that's what my study is actually looking like. Can oh we gosh. develop a test? Can we develop some way of figuring out who is more likely to um, have sperm in their pre-ejaculate and therefore make somebody pregnant? And I'm really excited about this. I'm about to start recruiting in the LA area pretty soon. So hopefully- You want a jizz. <laughs> you can reach out. So yeah, we're, lo we're looking for couples that use withdrawal or have used withdrawal in the past and are willing to use it for the study to see if um, the sperm has pre-ejaculate both in the lab as well as while they're having sex. Um, and with regard to withdrawal method, a lot of people who I know who practice withdrawal um, call it fertility awareness method. Is that the same thing? And is that, because that seems to be separate from whether or not your pre-cum has sperm, because that's about knowing when you're ovulating and knowing when you're actually able to get pregnant. Um, are you studying, like, is that a thing done in conjunction or is these two, are these two separate? Um, so people often use those two methods in conjunction. However, if we're just going strictly based on the definition of fertility awareness, that is not withdrawal. However, with fertility awareness, so when you are at the time where you're more likely to ovulate by using a condom or using withdrawal, you're decreasing your chance of getting pregnant with the fertility awareness method. God, I mean, I, I don't want to act like I'm surprised that you know so much, but I'm just so grateful for all the knowledge you've bestowed <laughs> upon us this episode. It's extremely timely and important. And as you said, like education is key. Absolutely. I wish more people knew that abortions are pretty common. One in four women have them. And it's nothing that you need to be embarrassed about or um, feel like you can't talk about because the more we talk about this and normalize it, the more that our culture can change to accept this because it is a form of health care. It is comprehensive women's health care and it is not going to go away. Like it's been happening since the beginning of time. And so the difference is whether it's going to happen safely where women don't have to die like they used to before Roe v. Wade or whether it's going to be safe and accessible and something that help women when they need it. Yeah, you can't make abortions go away. You can only make safe abortions go away. Hi, I am sexual folklorist Dixie Delator, the creator and host of Body Storytelling, the podcast and the original sex and storytelling series. 
It's a sphinctacular podcast featuring fascinating true stories of sex, kink, gender, body image, stories like these. And then we change positions and now I'm sucking off Spock while Captain Kirk rolls around and I get spit roasted. So it hit me square in the mouth. And my very first thought was, pineapple. The whole thing is an orgasm, but I'm just very mindful of, I'm shitting on his balls. Oh my God, I'm shitting on his balls. We're in the dark room. Our towels fall away. We grab each other's hard cocks. I've got a man's cock in my hand for the first time. And the space-time continuum is not unraveling. They call us the moth for pervs. So if you want to hear true stories from real people who might also be queer, polyamorous, trans, swingers, dominatrixes, furries, really anybody with a butthole, listen to the Body Storytelling Podcast at bodystorytelling.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much for coming. This is so crucial. I know you're not taking like private patients maybe at the moment, but if people do want to get in touch, whether it's for an article or to find a way to work with you or get involved in this research, what's the best way? So they can reach me by email, which is jasmine.patel at med.usc.edu. And on Twitter? At jpatel underscore md. Um, as always, if you want to keep up to date with what we're doing, you can follow us on Instagram at Sluts and Scholars, on Twitter at Slut Scholars. And if you like what we're doing, there's two things you can do. First of all, you can fucking subscribe and review on iTunes. Um, that really, really, really helps. So if you haven't yet reviewed us, but you actually like what we're doing, please go ahead and do that. And you can also support us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Sluts and Scholars. Thank you. Thank you.